everyone, and welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the show that covers horror franchises, one movie in one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian. We're back once again to talk Universal Monsters, and this time there are wedding bells in the air, or maybe not so much. Among the guests of honor today, returning again from the Movies for Life pod, along with having his writings on Bloody Disgusting and Manor Vorlum, Manor Vallum, it's Brian Kuiper. Brian, how are we? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to revisit. This is one of my favorite movies, period. So this is... Uh... This is a fun one to talk about. And you're we're talking off air like you're knee deep in writing about the hammer Frankenstein. Yeah. So like your letterbox right now is basically just Frankenstein. Pretty much. Well, Pretty much. I mean Excellent. though I've been I've been uh watching lots of different things just to try to keep myself sane, you know. Excellent. Yeah. Well, that's as, as we all should. Yeah. Also with us today from the Disenfranchised podcast joining us once again. Stephen Foxworthy. Stephen, how are we? Doing well. I got a glass of my only weakness. Gin here, toasting uh, to the new year and a uh, new world of gods and monsters. Excellent. Now that's an intro. That is quite the intro. (laughs) Fantastic. Pour about seven more of those right now and then talk to me in 30 minutes. Actually, how we're doing. You got it. (laughs) All right. And a warm welcome to our special guest today. She is the host of the What a Scream podcast. She's also a contributor to Ghouls Magazine, the Moving Pictures Film Club, and Fangoria. Let's welcome for the first time, I believe, Miss Egraine Hackett Cantabrana to the show. Egraine, how are we? I'm good, thank you. I was at um, a kid's birthday party earlier, so I'm feeling a little bit like I've been amongst the hordes of zombies, but oh look, my god, I've survived. I'm here. <laughs> What's the age group of the kid's birthday party? Six. Oh my. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they not old enough where they can like fully entertain themselves yet. No, they just kind of come back and forth for a bit of cake to get that sugar charge and then yeah, run and then they scream just again. Go again. <laughs> so it's six. Is it like bouncy castles and trampoline parks? Like yeah, what are they it, doing? It's like soft play. So they throw themselves around in this padded jungle gym mm-hmm. and yeah. I was going to say, for those that aren't from, like, Ireland or the UK, because I never heard of the term soft play um, until I married Claire, who's from Cornwall, and she would use this phrase soft play. I'm like, what does that mean? What is soft play? It's basically they pad everything with cushioning. <laughs> so I guess to avoid any sort of insurance claims. Um, Excellent. But, yeah, it's like climbing frames and slides. But if you whack into something, it's got a cushion on it. So it's basically a padded okay. cell for kids. Excellent. <laughs> nice. Excellent. And by the end of the party, the adults need the padded cell as well. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Don't miss, don't miss those days. Now we just have... Our daughters, who's who will be fourteen this year, her friends come over and just tell my wife and I how uncool we are for like a sleepover. It's fantastic. It's the best. So, well, we're not here to denigrate the younger generation today. No, you here. get that for free. No, you get that part for free. Absolutely. Uh, we are here to talk about the Bride of Frankenstein, and we're going to give our initial thoughts on the Frankenstein's monster. But Brian and I, we we kind of spoke about our history with Universal monster movies and Frankenstein in particular. So we're going to hold off. But I'd love 
love to hear from our guest and our other co-host right now, Winnie Grain. When I was seeking out guests for these episodes, like you came highly recommended from our mutual friend, Rebecca McCallum from the Talking Hitchcock podcast specifically for this movie. And honestly, if Rebecca says like, tell someone to come on like i listen like she says jump i say okay how high so i'm curious your history with the universal monster films and what it was about uh, elsa lanchester's bride that spoke to you specifically um so i got into horror through literature so my parents were very strict and didn't let me watch horror films because i had a mad imagination and so I read all the gothic novels like Dracula and Frankenstein from like the age of seven um and when I started to be allowed to watch horror films as a teenager it was more like what's the most gruesome thing I can watch so the universal never crossed my path really and it was only when I was older um and went to college and university and reread the gothic novels and then decided to seek out the adaptations and of course i went straight to universal first because even though i hadn't watched them they were still in my periphery like everyone knows that dracula especially um the universal dracula is the blueprint of you know the count from sesame street from what we now know as dracula um and of course the image of Uh, Frankenstein's monster and the bride is in pop culture as well so it always been in my periphery but it was only when I was older and went back and like I'm kind of grateful for that because I don't think I would have appreciated it as a teenager I was a bit of a gobshite so I don't think I think I would have been one of those arseholes that's like it's not horror because there's no blood um but yeah I went back and I just fell in love with it because it just became it spoke to my weird goth soul and it became like the universal horrors became real comfort watches to me. Like there's nothing better than sticking a universal horror on when, I mean, in Ireland, we get about two days a year of sunshine. So most of the time it's like cold, (laughs) windy, rainy. So they make perfect for, you know, those days where you literally cannot go outside your door. Um, I live in Western Washington, so I can relate to that. I (laughs) think I was going to say, sounds a lot like Chicago too. So It's snowing, raining outside my window right now. Like I'm looking at it snowing and raining at the same time. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. So you essentially live in like a universal monster movie setting, essentially is what you're saying. Yes. And of course, Ireland has lots of castles and grand manor houses as well. So it's it's very, um, sometimes you'll find yourself in a set that you're kind of like, oh my God, (laughs) like this could be perfect. Um, So when I first watched Bride of Frankenstein. I was interested in it because it's a continuation of the the novel itself. Um, and, you know, it's the title is Bride of Frankenstein, but yet she's only in it for like perhaps the last, what, 15, 20 minutes. Um, but the reason she really speaks to me as a character is she is made for this monster and by these men. But from the get-go, she displays her own autonomy. You know, she's mm-hmm. she's meant to be this mate of this monster and she just hisses at it and if that's not my natural reaction to most people i don't know what is like just hissing at people um and you know i'd always been really drawn to like the gothic aesthetics of the 80s and if elsa lancaster isn't the original 80s goth with her you know wired hair and i'm sure lots of hairspray yeah i just think the whole character just speaks to me on another level and it's one of the rare rare instances where the sequel is better than mm-hmm. than the one that came before it and as a as, as a queer person as well it just 
yeah, it speaks to all levels of me. So I think that's why this film, out of all the Universal films, is just like my favorite. I watch it at least once a year. Yeah. Were you came to it from like the novels first, where you read Shelley's work first? When you eventually watched the Universal movies, like when you were a little bit older, like when you're at university, was there any disconnect because the are so different from the source material because they went in such a, even the parts they take from Shelley's novel are adapted so differently. Was there any sort of like, Oh, this just feels much, much different. Like the Kenneth Branagh film is like the most, the closest thing we have to a, (laughs) not that one. (laughs) Yeah. Which is just, it's not good, but it's more faithful. Both are correct. Yes. I mean, I Although think that film. Shirtless was, Ken running I was just about around to say, is fun. I think that was just an excuse for him to be running around with a shirt off. Mm-hmm. Like, no one's dealing with electricity with their chest oiled up like that. Like, come on. But was there any sort of like, oh, this feels a little too different? Or did you, was the, the aesthetic so appealing that right from the get go, they like call to you? Um, I've always been the arsehole that's just like, the film's not like the book. It's why, like, you know, I don't like The Shining and I didn't like Doctor Sleep when it came out. But. I think because I was older that I could look at these films as products of their time. Whereas with Shelley's novel, it came about because of her experience with death, um, especially with the death of her infant, the death of her mother, the rejection that she faced from, you know, her lover as well as her stepmother. Um, And yes, Perhaps on the first watch, I was like, oh, you know, this isn't right. They've taken a lot of liberties. Same with like Dracula as well. But then you look at this work and especially when you look at James Whale as a director um, and the time in which these films came out and it just makes sense for some of the changes. Um, And it, you know, it kind of, I got used to the idea and it doesn't bother me as much anymore as it perhaps did on first watch. Can you settle an argument between my daughter and I? Because we were watching this last (laughs) night and she didn't believe me. Because I've read the novel a few times, though it's been years, and she hasn't yet. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me and she said, you know, in the book, like Frankenstein's creature is actually very attractive. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's like, it's the reason (laughs) that look you just gave me just settled the (laughs) argument right there. So I will play this part for her. I'm like, no, the creature is hideous. And that's Mm -hmm. why Victor runs away. He rejects the monster right away because it's so ugly. And she's like, no. And she's like, I don't believe you. The creature, it's just the eye that's not. And I'm like, honey, I've read the book many, many times. Like, I promise you that I'm right on this. But because I'm dad, I could not be right. I mean, sweet baby angel. It's, you know, a creation made of cadavers. (laughs) There's there's no hunkiness in that. (laughs) Show her the the Brana version because Robert De Niro is next level awful in that movie. That is a strange thing because... Uh, that I've heard from time to time over the years as well that, oh, did you know that in the book, um, the monster's name is Adam, which I hear sometimes, and he was attractive. I'm like, I think you're getting that from, there was a television movie in the 70s, Frankenstein, The True Mm -hmm. Story. I think that might be where some of that comes from. And um, so it's just this weird thing that sort of persisted over the years that I've heard crop up from time to time, yeah. And I think in recent times when they've had like adaptations, they've mm-hmm. been played by 
conventionally what is thought of as good looking people like you know the stage show is done by johnny miller and sure. benedict Cumberbatch. you types. know yeah. yeah yeah and even yeah. um oh god who's gonna play him in the guillermo del toro pedro one? pascal i wish oh my god i thought it was pedro <laughs> no, pascal. Ask, ask. They, they cast a uh, javier bardem in the dark universe one when they were gonna do that no i know it was gonna be javier bardem oscar isaac is playing dr frankenstein in guillermo del toro's one but i can't remember who's playing the monster i want to say it's andrew garfield which is okay that could be right yeah so well and aaron eckhart played him in the i frankenstein movie that's which right, i mean yeah. that's a completely separate thing but it plays to that point for mm-hmm. sure well thank you for that and i look forward to playing that clip back for my daughter <laughs> <laughs> still not believe me but that's okay steven you've spoken many times about being a relative newcomer to horror so I imagine like you don't have the same history that many of us do where we grew up with a novel or grew up with these movies, like watching them as kids on television. So I was wondering like what your relationship with like what the universal monsters are in like Frankenstein in particular. Yeah. I mean, well, these are the classics, like the universal kind of set the standard for what these monsters looked like in pop culture writ large. So I mean, you you would have to grow up in a vacuum to not recognize these characters, even if you were little sheltered or scared of everything. Did, Me. Did you grow up um, in a vacuum? Like a literal uh, vacuum? No. I mean, Indiana, so close enough. But it might as well be, right? Um, but no, I... Um, w- one of the big reasons, actually, that I didn't... I was not allowed to get into horror as a kid... Is because when my dad was a child, um, his father used to, he had a mask of the creature from the Black Lagoon and used to just terrify him. Like, so my dad was absolutely terrified of the creature from the Black Like, he would like put it on and like jump into his room at night and stuff like that and just scare the bejesus out of my dad. At least this is the story as I recall him telling it. So he was like, my dad was completely out on horror. And then, of course, my parents were both religious. So then it was the added level of monsters are the devil. Um, so I just was never going to watch horror at all. So I, you know, the, the universal monsters are at least somewhat indirectly involved in my not getting into horror until much later in life. Um, but even before that, I did manage to catch the original universal phantom from the twenties with Lon Chaney, because my roommate in college was really, really into the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. And so we watched that adaptation because he got it at like, the $1 band at like a dollar store or something. Cause it was public domain and he could. Um, so we did watch that one. So that may be one of the earlier horror movies that I saw. Um, but then when I did start getting into horror, <clears throat> excuse me, when I did start getting into horror as an adult, universal is kind of the, that's the standard. So like, it was kind of one of those, like, I know I'm going to have to get to these at some point because these are the standard bearers for, the, I mean, these are the giants on which modern horror stands. So I'm going to have to get to this point eventually at some point. And so I've started within the past probably five or six years when I would go to like a used bookstore or something. If I were to see one or the, or a, better yet, a collection of them uh, on the shelves, I would just grab those and just have them. So I have um dracula i've got the wolfman i've got creature from the black lagoon like the universal legacy collection uh box sets and then my partner has the one for frankenstein which has made this 
so easy um so to you, watch these basically you own three copies of like house of dracula house of frankenstein yeah, basically because yeah. all these movies interconnect like when you look at the box sets because yeah. you know this was like the one of the first examples if not the first example of like a shared universe where you uni- yeah. we'll talk mm-hmm. about that where universal is like let and they do try to have some sort of cohesive story that would make sense for why they would come together. Right. And which I loved. I mean that I, as I'm, I've always been fascinated by shared universes. Mm -hmm. Like as a kid, I remember, and I've talked about this on a couple of other podcasts, but there was like, I used to read Disney adventure magazine and there was a story that they told across like five different issues where there was this chaos God that uh, afflicted like all the different shows in the Disney afternoon, one at a time. And I thought that was so cool that all of them existed in the same universe. Um, there was that ABC or that, that cartoon, um, like anti-drug cartoon with George C. Scott from the early nineties that played around here with like every Saturday morning cartoon from every network coming together to keep this kid from doing drugs. Like I just thought that shit was so cool when I was growing up that all these different characters from all these different worlds would come together and exist in the same place. So the idea that universal is kind of the, the progenitor of that I think is really awesome. Um, and it may, it, it makes me want to dig into all of this a lot more for sure. And I've, I've dug into the ones that I have, I've seen Wales invisible man as well, but I haven't really dug into the rest of that franchise, uh, as much. That's a um, weird so I've kind franchise. Of, I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's wild swings from, from the first one being so horror bound to, comedies to a spy thriller to uh, mm-hmm. the last one is almost a vampire movie. I mean, it's a very interesting series. <laughs> well, and that's kind of what I loved about what they, cause it was just kind of like, let's see what sticks. Like we have this premise. Let's just kind of throw shit at the wall and see what works. And then if it doesn't, we're like, okay, well we won't do that again. But, and that's kind of what I love about, I mean, cause the universal franchise monsters franchise is all over the place, which I think is rad as hell. And that's one of the reasons why I liked it. I've, I've been very piecemeal in terms of what I have and haven't engaged with. But one of these days, I am going to just dedicate a year to just going through all of the Universal mm-hmm. monster movies. And there is like one massive collection, I believe, that's about 64 movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can buy everything individually, but if you piecemeal it together, it's 64. I know I have like the eight film blu-ray that has like the eight like what are considered like the masterpieces and then mm-hmm. i have like the frankenstein collection which is what inspired us you know when brian and i talked about doing like the karloff movies then like hey we already own all of them like let's just do the whole series which is what we typically do anyway like why stop at three uh, right why would yeah. we not do meets you know abbott and costello meets the wolfman you said something there i want to touch on Mm. You would terrorize your father wearing his. No, no, no. My my father would terror terrorize his son. My father, or my grandfather would terrorize okay. my father. Sorry. So he would basically be Mark Duplass from that movie Creep doing peach fuzz. He would wear the mask and. <laughs> I haven't seen Creep yet, so maybe. Okay. It's a good one to watch. It's yeah, a good one. Uh, I like that. Okay. One. But I'm getting a, a visual there that. Um, you know, 
uh, just say that I have some openings on my couch. If your dad ever needs to talk, uh, <laughs> I do do telehealth appointments. So well, okay. this was this was as a child. I think at this point he's well past it. But well, yeah, horror horror not a thing for my dad at all. Oh yeah, because no one ever talks about their childhood in therapy sessions. <laughs> like that nope. stuff is typically <laughs> off limits. I guess like every not, not my dad, but yeah, I understood. Understand so. All right, let's talk. Let's before we talk more about Stephen's dad. This is a Stephen's dad podcast, is what we've become. Uh, let's move on to the background of Bride of Frankenstein. Sorry, I've just made Stephen choke to death. Um, he's uh, this will be the last podcast yes. ever because I will be dead. Excellent. So. All right, let's talk a little bit before we talk about the movie proper. Let's talk about how Bride of Frankenstein came to be. And in the four years in between Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, based on the success of, of Wales, first film and, of course, Todd Browning and Dracula, Universal Studios becomes really the first home of horror movies. It becomes the home that monsters built and uh, Brian Egrain, Steven, I'm wondering like, what are some of the other successes in the intervening years? Like those four years in between, like we see a number of like hit films and still like classics. We remember to this day from universal that we still watch and revere. Right. Oh, sure. Absolutely. There's some ups and downs, of course. Um, the, uh, the mummy, was a big success uh, in well a pretty good success but like murders in the Rue morgue not so much so they did a lot of experimenting finding their 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 way a little bit um, Poe did come back uh, for the black cat in 1934 uh, which was I think partially successful because it was a team up between Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff uh, for the first right. time together on screen kind of thing uh, at it's like the heat of the 1930s. That's right. Well, that's a great movie, and that's a really, really like sadistic movie, even now. Um, so, yeah, it's it's pretty great. I <laughs> I wanted to ask how that one slipped by the censors. I mean, because a Karloff gets to <laughs> indulge a real sadistic side. I mean, he basically plays like a satanic high priest mm -hmm. in this movie. But there's like it culminates in. Like after like Karloff kills Lugosi's like love interest in the movie, Lugosi like chains Karloff to a crucifix and whips him to death. If I remember, He's, correctly. he skins him alive. Right. Yeah. How does this make it past the censors? It slipped in, in like the thirties. It slipped in just code. at the end of pre-code. Okay. Yeah. So it's uh, barely, barely made, it. made it, but yeah, it's it's one of the last pre-code horror films. Um, so that's, I, th that's all I, that's how I, how it did it. I think, um, of course you have the invisible man, which is still just, uh, man, that, that, that movie is amazing. And of course that's James Whale returning to form. Um, but James Whale's previous film, um, the old dark house didn't do very well at the time. Uh, it's a classic now, but, um, back then it was, didn't do so hot. Um, and uh, so th there's sort of this finding their way in the early 30s still um, and that I find Why was that? Was there any anything you could find or anything you've read that says, like, why the old dark house, like, was middling? I mean, it has Karloff mm -hmm. getting top billing. It's James Whale directing. 
any it's a kind of a mix of tone where it's horror right. and comedy together it's a fun romp any reason why it, it didn't meet with a lot of success i think people didn't get it I, I i think it's it's very british in tone i mean and for american audiences that was something they were not um ready for at the time um and it's not it's barely a horror film, to be honest with you. I mean, yes, it takes place in an old dark house. There's nothing supernatural going on in it at all. Um, you have uh, Karloff in disfigured makeup, but um, again, he's not in it that much, to be honest with mm-hmm. you. Um, so I think they were sort of, maybe audiences were expecting sort of with that team of, of Whale and Karloff, another Frankenstein, and Old Dark House is not that. Any grain, I know you've written about so the old dark house for Fangoria and how censors kind of took like they basically took out the pencil and said, this has to go. This has to go change this. What were like censors objecting to at the time with with whale uh, trying to bring to the table with the old dark house? Um, well, again, it was pre code, so it wouldn't have been subject to as much um, as, say, Bride of Frankenstein. Um, It was heavily coded, though. Um, Obviously, James Whale was an out um, director, out queer director. Um, And so even though it was pre-code, you could definitely almost feel this, like, impending kind of looming presence of of the Hayes Code. Um, So the the family who own the house, Femme, they're, again, they're called Femme. Um, they're very campy. I mean, you can watch this and be like, now I know exactly where Rocky Horror Picture Show comes from. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. it's a very clear mm-hmm. ancestral line. And there are definitely subtextual themes of, um, you know, homosexuality um, and almost like a sexual deviance in the film and... You know, this this family have been outcast to this house and they've got a terrible secret and these strangers come in and they're trying to hide it. And yeah, it's it's definitely very heavily code, especially with like Ernest Theisiger's character as well with Karloff's character. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it, it definitely wasn't a massive victim of the Hayes Code as films further on. But I mean, you watch it and you're like, oh my God, if this isn't stuff like Rocky Horror Picture Show, I don't know what is. And it's interesting because the remake of The Old Dark House, Hammer's remake, was uh, shot in the same, um, used the same castle uh, for Rocky as Rocky Horror uh, did mm. would later. So there's definitely even more of a, of a direct line there even. Excellent. So all this is going on, like basically Universal is building, you know, this is what is helping keep the lights on for Universal Studios. And I know, Brian, we talked last time how like Carl Lamelli Jr. is championing these monster films, but not a lot of other pictures at Universal are doing great. Lamelli is spending money faster than he can make it mm-hmm. on a lot of other movies. They tend to be going over budget. They're not pulling a lot of money back in. So obviously they want to make another Frankenstein movie. It was like the third big, you had mentioned like the third biggest hit of 1931. 
and he wants to bring James Whale back immediately, but James Whale's he has no desire to come back. He feels like I'm done that the, he says the idea has been squeezed dry and I never want to work on it again. Um, he does, like you said, work on the invisible man, um, which is another iconic universal monster movie. He does it. He basically, he gives the his friend's script, RC sheriff. Like that was considered one of the best science fiction scripts going around town. And then Melly says like, please allow me to direct this and set a bride right now so that becomes a hit whale would always be like from what i can gather like proud of his horror output like what he did with frankenstein dark oh dark house bride and the invisible man but he always wanted to work in like drama and comedy and be considered more of like an a-list director he makes a number of like in between the two frankensteins he makes kiss before the mirror the Imperfect Maiden by Candlelight, One More River. I mean, he's cranking these movies out. And I'm wondering like, what you guys could tell me a little bit about Wales. I am not super familiar with it outside of the four genre pictures. Is there anything about Wales directing style or any other pictures of note that historians would point to besides, say, The Invisible Man and his Frankenstein movies? that he would be known for or remembered for. I feel like showboats, the big one mm-hmm. like that. That's his other like totemic work, not to sorry for using that word, but that's kind of his like big um, I, that's on his Mount Rushmore. I would say um, along with the invisible man and the Frankensteins, like that's just kind of that, that that's just a big work for him. Um, and you get, I think you get a really good look at some of his directorial flourishes in this movie, particularly compared to say something like the original Frankenstein that he also directs, or even the invisible man. Um, the, the final shots, uh, with, uh, Elsa Lancaster and her like presentation as the bride is, I mean, you got those, those quick cuts from all the different angles, um, the, the really stark close-ups against the black backdrop like all of that is just very that that's stuff that wasn't being done to that degree in 1935 like you weren't seeing a lot of that kind of filmmaking yet now it looks very passe but at the time that's fairly bold um and not a lot of people are making movies like that um which i think really helps to set whale apart like i would consider whale like the auteur of the universal monsters franchise because, and, but I think it's because he's the guy that gave us Frankenstein. He's the guy that gives us the the Invisible Man and the Bride. He's the one that's really able to put like it feels. This feels like a Gremlins two or a Batman Returns, which are the two examples I cite all the time, where they just give the director a ton of freedom and are like, just go nuts, James. And he does. And he that's one of the reasons why this is one of my favorites of the Universal mm-hmm. franchise, if not my favorite, because I love it when directors just get to go off and. And he does. And I think it, it works really well because he has a style and he has a vision. Like he's, he's more than just a journeyman competent, set up the camera, pointed at the thing and let it roll. He has ideas and structures and he builds those into the art form and manages to push it forward as a result. But all that to say showboat, I think is the other really big one. Um, big musical, Paul Robeson, old man river, classic i think that one's actually in the criterion collection as well if i'm not mistaken like that's but but i would say other than his horror output like that's the one that i think is the best showcase for what he 
does well as a director. I think his early work um, that really got him the attention, of course, was uh, Journey's End and Waterloo Bridge, both war films. Um, Mm -hmm. And of course, his capper was going to be Journey's End, or I'm sorry, not Journey's End, The Road Back, which is um, the sequel to All Quiet on the Western Front. And it was supposed to be his masterpiece. And Mm. it got gutted by the studio and so um he all but just gave up after that uh it was so heartbreaking to him and that was something that had been dangled as a carrot for him for years you know like after frankenstein they said okay we want you to make the invisible man he proposed something and then he started working on on the road back and though so this is like a constant theme was the road back the road back the road back it's like you bride a frankenstein for us you get to do the road back and he finally did and it was after the lemleys had uh, lost the studio it was sort of made in that interim and um the new the new guard just gutted the movie and so what was his reputation because like the lemleys brought him in like carl jr brings him in for all quiet on the western front um, brings him in for Frankenstein, gives him the creative freedom, like to do what he needs to do. Like the special effects on the Invisible Man still hold up to this day. Gives him the money he needs to do to make Bride bigger and better. But when Lamelli loses Universal Studios, they go in cost cutting mode. Basically, like the yeah. new the folks that take it over are trying to like cut money wherever they can, and it it feels like Whale is someone who. It's like does it, budget doesn't really matter. Like he'll shut down a production for ten days because he needs someone who's going to do ten two scenes to come in and do that part. And if they're making another movie, he'll wait ten days to make him get that person to finish that movie before he'll do anything else. What what is it? Is it just that, or is there other things that prevent Whale? Because by the early forties, like Whale is pretty much not making movies anymore. Uh, well. I, I think that with there are a couple of things. Yes, he, Frankenstein, for example, did go over budget. Um, so I, I think that maybe there there was some consideration that with the new guard, but also the Hayes Code. I think uh, as a openly gay artist, um, this by the time the Hayes Code was being enforced was becoming uh, an issue, I guess. And so um, it was, I think, a combination of factors along those lines. Um, I'd love to hear other, I, I'm, but I, I can't say that I know for sure um, on this particular question. So, but does anyone else have any insight on those things? I do not, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of reading this terrific biography on James Whale, and I haven't gotten to sort of that phase yet. So I, I, okay. I, I wish I could, had more definitive answers for you on no that. No worries. Mm-hmm. No worries. Are we going to do Gods and Monsters for the Patreon, Mike? I have no idea. That would actually be a really interesting if you watch. Would, if you that would got, be cool. You know, I don't have to be on every episode. If yeah. you guys wanted to do that... Um, I will put I would it up love there. That. I will absolutely do that. So, you know, I'm not going to say no to anything pretty much, you know, <laughs> you know, my, my philosophy on the show was like, yeah, let's find a way to make that work. So 
All right, well, let's talk about trying to make it work because, you know, Whale says no, but Lamelli says yes, and he is taking all these proposals in. He wants to get this movie made. Robert Flurry, who was originally tapped to direct Frankenstein before he was moved to uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue, sounds like he kind of like slips this treatment under the door. Well, he did the like same thing writes... with The Invisible Man. <laughs> Yeah. He had a treatment for the invisible Poor Robert man. Flurry. He's just kind of in in the picture, out of the picture a lot during this time and he, he's like the Millhouse's dad of the Frankenstein. <laughs> so yeah, I sleep in like, a race car bed yeah. and write <laughs> Um but like he writes a seven page treatment and it's returned with like no notes. Not no notes, this is a great idea, it's just like no notes, we're not gonna go with this. Um there are a lot of other drafts that are turned. I think eight people work on this movie mm-hmm. altogether. Can we talk about some of these early proposals really quick? Yeah. Um, they're out there. So there's like one by Tom Reed called The Return of Frankenstein, which I think was like the shooting script name all the way up until they decide to call it Bride of Frankenstein. He does use like chunks of the novel where the monster is much more enlightened, but it ends up being like way more gruesome. Uh, I think I had like another thing of notes here where there's like a lot of villagers that die. Elizabeth dies like midway through the treatment of it. And that actually would be like a running gag in all of these treatments. Like all of them end with like Elizabeth dying a horrible grisly death. Well, that's in the novel. No. There's one by a playwright, John Balderstan, where Henry and Elizabeth apparently joined the circus. Can anyone speak to that? Well, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where, um, yeah, they, they, they hide out in the circus. Um, and eventually um, the the monster catches up with them demands the mate he makes the uh makes the bride um and he uses an oversized head of a circus freak um and a woman's yes. body parts he steals from local train wrecks um, so how many train wrecks were there in this uh, well, area? I mean, what i was curious about is jessica fletcher yeah, in town there, i don't there know you go. um so, um, and the monster ends up being eaten by a lion. That's interesting. Yep. Um, yeah. My favorite though, is the one where the league of nations hires him to mm-hmm. build a death ray. I, I think that is, I mean, <laughs> let's pull in some current politics. Let's, let's make this real, really something crazy. So, I mean, that's wild. Well, what I liked about the circus one was they were hiding out but they were also puppeteers that were like reenacting events from the first movie is puppeteers. So like super subtle as well. Like best way (laughs) to do it. But yes, also the death ray angle, like going the full mad scientist route. So I don't know which copy of the script, but when James whale finally comes on board, um, he basically says like, I'll do it. But these scripts like stink to high heaven. Like Uh I am not, making any of these scripts and it is he and i apologize brian you probably know this off the top of your head uh it is he and is it william hurlbut yeah that is yeah. that are credited for the 
for the major script. And what are, what are the major additions that Whale is going to bring to the table here? Well, I think the subtext is a clear mm-hmm. element. Um, it's a direct continuation from where we left off. I mean, technically speaking, you don't need the uh, little epilogue that he was forced to film at the end of Frankenstein with this movie. The first movie could end where it originally ends. uh, And you have, you know, just the villagers around the burning windmill and that's it, you know, cut to black. Um, And then you start with this movie. And um, because in this Henry comes back to life and you have the great, it's alive. He's alive scene, you know, sort of mimicking uh, from the original. But uh, you have um, the addition of Dr. Pretorius as sort of this Mephistopheles character, um, sort of the Faustian angle, which he brought, which Whale had brought into his original treatment of uh, the Invisible Man, which is interesting. And so um, when that didn't end up in that movie, it's brought here. Um So you have just, I mean, we'll talk about those things, I think, when we talk about the film itself. But there are so many Mm -hmm. great, uh, great touches that are brought into this movie. Um, And maybe above all, just the comedic nature of the movie. It's it's um, it's I was thinking about this because I've never thought of the original as being really funny. But then our conversation last time was like. This movie's really funny. I was like, is it? And so it made me, it, it was sort of made me go like, is this like Toby Hooper uh, with Texas Chainsaw 1 and 2? It's like the first time around, I made a comedy, but y'all didn't think it was funny. So here I'm just going to make it obvious. You know, I think there are right. a few funny bits in it. Yeah. I wonder how much of that is like, this movie is old. Exactly. That's what old, I was thinking. Old too. things are funny. Yeah. I mean, like, let's face it, like, we laugh at old people all the time. And I say that as like a soon to be old person. So um, there are kids on my lawn. I have to go yell at them. Sorry, I'll be right back. Going to yell at a cloud. Yeah, but (laughs) definitely. Well, they're filled right now. Um, But this is like James Wan is like before. I'm sorry, before. There's like James Wan getting like, thanks for making Aquaman. Now here's a blank check to go make Malignant. Like there's James Whale getting to do whatever he wants with Frankenstein. Like all the things you mentioned that he brings to the table there. But he's also like, I want Elsa Lancaster to play Uh not only the bride, but she has to play Mary Shelley or I'm not going to do it. Uh, And Lancaster at the time, like she was married to Charles Lawton, who was another one of you know, uh, Wales kind of like troop of actors. Like he writes the role of Pretorius for Claude Rains, thinking like after Invisible Man, Rains will jump on board. And Rains is like, I don't want to do horror movies anymore. Like I don't want to be typecast. This is not what I really want to do. Like he had done, I think he would do Phantom of the Opera later. Yep. He did that this right? same Space. year. He did yeah. uh, Casablanca. Yeah. So, you know, what a year. year after. Um, yeah. But what a run. Claude Rains. Yeah, Claude love him. Yeah. So he brings uh, Ernest Thessinger on board, another one of his troupe. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think he was like a running buddy from his days doing live theater. Yeah. Like he mm-hmm. was like a mentor to Whale in a lot of ways. Mary Wives of Windsor, was it, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So 
he's getting the do basically i mean he has like house money to play with at this point um I heard a rumor, and I don't know if this is true, that yeah. the or his original choice for the bride was Brigitte Helm from Metropolis, but that she'd retired by that point and didn't want to do it. I, I don't know how accurate that is, but I think that would be a really remarkable casting, if true. From what I've read and watched, like all the docs I've seen, it was always Elsa. Okay. Casting. I mean, that, that the look, look was always... I'm not mad. The look was always patterned on Metropolis, but like even like months ahead of the months ahead of shooting the movie, like the production notes had her penciled in and it just like okay. stayed that way. Like that she was always like penciled in. Okay. Can we talk Karloff for a few minutes? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what sort of run does this man go on in between the two Frankensteins? Like Boris goes from, you know, I have to like go work in the fields and drive a truck in between, you know, pictures to like I'm getting top billing and founding the Screen Actors Guild. Like he is now the star of like a number of these movies, right? Like he's the reason you go to the movies. Well, one of the things that's interesting is a lot of the movies that he made right that came out, I should say, after Frankenstein in 1932 were things he'd already been contracted to do. Like, uh, for example, Scarface. Uh, he's got a little bit part in that, um, which is really small, but it's really memorable because he gets killed in a, while he's bowling. And it's an amazing moment. Um, I love that that uh, that part of that movie. Um and so, so he's doing gangster movies. He's doing horror films. He gets cast in all sorts of things. He's not really like stuck at Universal at this time. It's it's there's lots of stuff going on. Um, then there's you know uh, stuff at MGM. You know, like the Mask of Fu Manchu, which is um, sketchy uh, <laughs> to say the least. Um, I, I first of all, yeah. it, it was a it's a mess of a movie as I understand. I haven't actually seen it yet. I, I own it, but I'm afraid to watch it because uh, first of all, it's supposed to be a real mess of a movie. He's in yellow face um, as a Chinese gangster kind of character. Crime yeah, Lord, yeah. Um, yeah. So there's that. And he's, he's sort of wanting, they're trying to get things started for him at universal. They want to get him going at universal and they, they put him in, um, the old dark house and the smaller role as Morgan. Um, but then eventually there's the mummy. Now the mummy was um, like, this was the next big monster role. John Balderston writing it, uh, you know, not based on anything this time. Well, it's technically a remake of Dracula. If you watch it, it's pretty much Dracula, but um, it's, it's a different character. It's a new character. Um, and uh, he gets to talk, which is another thing, too. And you get to hear his his wonderful speaking voice um, in 1932. Uh, he was going to be in The Invisible Man. He was, like, connected to The Invisible Man, like, right after Frankenstein came out. Um, until uh, Lemley Jr., all those money problems, he kept on promising certain contractual payments to Karloff and he wasn't given them. So Karloff said, okay, then I'm out of here. And he left, he broke his contract and he spent about, um, a year 
or so uh, freelancing. And he's in lots of different kinds of movies. He is his, This is one time where he's really in quote-unquote A pictures. So he's playing supporting roles, but he's working with John Ford in The Lost Patrol, for example. That's the only one that's really remembered of those movies. But there are a few that were, at the time, pretty high-profile films. Yeah. And then Universal realizes what they've been missing and what they had, and they need to get it back. So uh, after that, it's uh, a run in 1934-35 with um, The Black Cat um, and other team-ups with Lugosi uh, and things like that, where he slowly goes from them being equally billed to it being Karloff and Bela Lugosi. Um, So uh, it's an interesting run during this period between 31 and 35, um, and there's quite a lot going on. It's not, he, he doesn't really get completely typecast as a horror star until after Bride. Right. So. Egrain, any favorites from this period? Like, none of us have seen The Mask of Dr. Fu Manchu. Are you familiar with that one? I am absolutely not, and I have <laughs> very little desire to watch it. No, I don't no. think any of us are <laughs> chomping at the bit no. to see that one. <laughs> No, um, my favorite would be the old dark house. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. out of that, that is it's again. It's in my regular run of my the the Universal films that I I tend to rewatch. Um, I think I've seen the Mummy like once. Um, it's not. But yeah, great. Other th- it's kind of yeah. dull. <laughs> it's kind of dull. It is. Yeah, obviously, because I cannot remember a thing about it. We, my um, my son fell asleep <laughs> on it when we saw it in the theater. <laughs> I almost did the first time I watched it too. So, yeah. and then I was like, "Was I wrong? Should I check it out again?" No, it I was has, not wrong. It, it no, has, it's not. It has it's not some great. merit, but overall, it's kind of a kind of a chore. So I'm sorry, you were saying. I'm great. sorry. Yeah. Yeah, but for me, it would be like the old dark house. I don't really. It's. I mean, obviously, this is an actor's worst nightmare, but I don't see him as anything else apart from the monster. Like he's mm-hmm. just so and like so. If I see, it, I'm, I'm sure I've seen him in other films. Um, but yeah, it's just, that's just what I connect him to. So I don't really have like any memories of him being in anything else apart from the old dark house. Um, have you heard of the Grinch? Oh, he did the narration, didn't he? He is the, he probably what he's yeah. best known for, right? Even After more, Frankenstein, I'd say. I'd say even more. I would say even more than Frankenstein. I bet. He's probably even better known for the Grinch than Frankenstein, as much as it pains me to say it. I've never seen that version of the Grinch. I'm gonna oh, wow. put that out there. That's wow. my okay. yeah. <laughs> I kind of wish that was the only version of the Grinch I've ever seen. Yeah, <laughs> there it is. There is a version of the Grinch I like, and it is like dads and uncles dressing up like the Grinch and pretending to steal their kids' gifts, and their kids freaking out <laughs> and going mm-hmm. ballistic. Like that is choice a choice way to spend like 20 minutes killing time watching those videos and those kids are going to be future clients of yours oh absolutely <laughs> i need to keep my business rolling i got bills to pay sure. uh, i think of the movies that happen between frankenstein and bride uh, old dark house is obviously i think the pinnacle but uh for Karloff, I would I would say, you know, the Black Cat is really, really good. Um, the Invisible Ray, some of those movies. Um, 
post there, you have like uh, the movie you did with Michael Curtiz, The Walking Dead, which is terrific. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't want to get into the 40s because we'll talk about that more when we talk yeah. of House of House of Frankenstein yeah. in a few weeks. And when he did Targets, was it The Body Snatcher? Was that the movie that he had on with Cassavetes? Oh, he, he's, he's watching. He's actually watching uh, The Criminal Code, which came out in okay. 19, early 1931, late 1930. That's right. That was his big break. Yeah, right? um, that was okay. the and that's a good movie. He plays mm-hmm. this. He has this great speech in that about um, how he was uh, he he more or less kills a man over a glass of beer and it's pretty great it's uh it's it's uh it's a it's a good movie um and howard hawks you know sort of in that in his early stages as well it's a good movie yeah excellent so whale is getting to do pretty much what he wants with this movie except for one thing standing in his way and that's something that we've mentioned and that is like the production or the Hayes Code. Yes. And that is led at this time by Joseph Breen who's a former minister I believe who is going to try to basically take a sledgehammer to the Bride of Frankenstein. Any grain like I know you've written about the Hayes Code in the past uh, specifically how it affected Whale in his films during this time period. And I wonder if you might speak to what it was in Bride that the censors, because there's a number of things uh, that the censors were like specifically concerned about that Whale was trying to slip past them. Mm. So even before uh, the Bride went into production, the script was um, taken over by the censors and they suggested strongly suggested to make um quite a few changes um so there is a point which you know it's kind of the whole point of the the you know Shelley's uh one of the points of Shelley's books is Henry Frankenstein likens his ability to create life as God does and of course because um I was going to say at the time Christian fundamentalism, but sorry, America, you're a bit mad with the whole <laughs> Christian fundamentalism soon. Um, but yes, so they they asked them to take that out of the script. Um, there was also a scene, which is bizarre because we still have um, uh, representations of the crucifix in Bride, but there was a scene where the monster went towards a crucifix to try and save the figure of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And they wanted that taken out. That's um, wild to me because it actually make it shows the worse. most sympathetic. <laughs> yeah. 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 You'd think like that, you know, there's, we'll get into it, but there's a point where he's hoisted up and he's whipped yep. as mm-hmm. if he is the figure of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, it's a bizarre, but um, senses aren't exactly known for their logic sometimes. Um, the amount of murders that were in the script had to be minimized. They, mm-hmm. I don't think they could go above like perhaps five. Um, and then also, <laughs> poor Elsa Lancaster her uh, cleavage was a bit too much when she was dressed as Mary Shelley and <laughs> they thought she was showing a bit much I mean, um, it's, it's a heaving bodice like when you see her in that dress <laughs> it is definitely yes but one of my favourite changes um, so originally the heart that they use to put into the bride uh, was meant to be Elizabeth's and the reason that they decided to change it or were prompted to change it apparently was because it portrayed a very solid death of like Henry Frankenstein's heterosexuality. Mm. 
um, mm-hmm. that he had killed his bride to make a life with uh, Dr. Pretorius. And it was a very solid, well, he's chosen a man over oh. a woman. Um, so they, so that's they picked up on that. They were they clever enough to pick up on that. There yes. is in the novelization, like Pretorius's sexuality is much less ambiguous. Like there's a line there where Pretorius says like, you know, the fruits of our labor, like be forth, go and, and procreate. And he goes to Henry, you have the option of doing that with your bride. I, because of my proclivities, like don't have that option. Like he's much mm-hmm. more forthright. So I wonder mm-hmm. if that line was originally in the script and they're like, yeah, we're going to take a big red pencil to this one. Yeah, but even though they did, there's still, like, one of the lines that I picked up on, he says, um, oh, gosh, I wrote it down somewhere. He says, um, just like love, science is full of surprises or something Mm -hmm. like that. So Mm -hmm. there's still lines in it where you're like, well, we all know what he's talking about. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. It's a bit of a cheeky wink there. uh (laughs) The line, gin, it's my only weakness. If he was like, young men, it's my only weakness. It's like, change that to gin and we'll let that in. Later he says cigars are his only mm-hmm. weakness. So you're like, well, how many other weaknesses does yes. this man yes. have if these are his only weaknesses? Oh, it's a it's a bit of nice uh, satirical comedy going mm. on there. But it is a lot more violent of a script than the first one. There's like 21 deaths in the original script. In, the, in Whale Wants Them All In, he eventually cuts it down to like 10. Did he try anything like Hitchcock would later on down the road where like Hitchcock would say like, you need me to cut what? And then he's like, sure, I'll do that. And then submit the same cut of the movie and be like, yep, took care of that for you. And then they'd be like, okay, it passed. And then he really cut nothing from it. Or was that not going to be the case with something like this? Um, I don't, I think cause, because at this point they were very strict. Um, this was like the Hayes code at its strongest where I think with Hitchcock, it was slowly, you know, it was kind of coming to an end at that point. I think especially the reason for the Hayes Code as well came in was because of the whole, you know, Fatty Arbuckle thing. So I think they were very, very strict at this point. Um, so, yeah, I don't think he could have got away with that. I mean, he got away with a lot. Like, let's not lie. He did get away with a lot. But then again, that's because us looking back at it, like, you know, as queer people, as queer allies, we know. Whereas back then... They probably weren't as, you know, clued in. Right. And what were Breen and his ilk afraid of specifically? Like you hear of like corrupting minors and corrupting women specifically. Like what do they fear these movies were, how they were going to corrupt people in the end? They really believed that it wasn't just like women and children. It was people of susceptible minds. So they were really like everyone is stupid. (laughs) And if if they see something on the screen, they're going to recreate it. But it was silly things like lustful kissing. You couldn't show lustful kissing on, on screen. Um, definitely not nudity. Uh, violence that went over the top. Um, yeah, it was basically like, we don't want people to be impressionable. And so you cannot show anything, basically. It wasn't just think of the children. It was any poor simple mind that went yeah. to see this film. <laughs> Basically middle America. <laughs> the 
flyover states. The I, I you said lustful kissing, Grant, and I just thought of every old movie I've ever seen where the the man and woman just grab each other and just breathe heavily into each other's faces. Like I and I just I just had to laugh because I'm like, well, yeah, that that keeps us from having to do any lustful kissing. We'll just do some heavy breathing. Like God, you know, we, I I. I laugh about this because it seems so ridiculous. And then I remember I live in a country where they're bringing back book bands. Mm -hmm. So what the hell do we, we haven't learned anything in 90 years, basically. Nope. Uh, So yeah. And we never will. (laughs) Excellent. All right. On that happy note, let's talk about (laughs) a happy camper known as Jack Pierce, who beloved by all, Super pleasant, <laughs> just like, you know, whistled a jaunty tune while he did his work. No, <laughs> Jack Pierce, like Elsa Lanchester describes him as like just really unpleasant. Like she said, like you wouldn't like go into his like makeup room and uh, you entered his you entered his domicile. And it almost sounds like you couldn't look him directly in the eye that you would go in very quietly and you couldn't greet him and be like, hey, Jack, how are you doing? Like you waited, as she described it, you waited for him to greet you. And if you were to say hello to him first, he would like grit his teeth at you. Um, she describes the makeup process as like extremely laborious. And she describes the scarring, the stitching that she gets uh, under her chin in particular, taking like a, a very long time. And I think she says like, why couldn't he have used like a 10 cent piece that he would have gotten at a joke shop? Like for all the time it's on screen, you probably would have had the same effect. But, you know, I think part of the reason we remember the bride so fondly to this day is because Pierce took his work so serious, right? I mean, because he, you know, he seems like he was difficult to work with, but he also was like the master at his craft. Between him and Vera West on on costume design, like it's it's such an incredible one two punch, and it's it's why you remember it, it's it's why you remember the bride. It's why she's so indelible because she's. I embarrassingly like first of all, I embarrassingly thought Frankenstein was barely in this movie. Um, I don't know why. I just completely misremembered that. So that's a black black spot on my eye. But then I also misremembered how little of this movie the bride is in. She's just in that little section at the end like maybe five or six minutes there at the end. And, but the look is so iconic and it's, and I would say that's in, in conjunction with Lanchester's performance, it's Pierce and it's West and it's the work that they did in this film that really just makes that character what it is. And then I think the continuation of the, you know, sort of like the logical continuation, I should say of the monsters makeup uh, going from, you know, such you know, beautifully iconic image to um, he's been burned now. His hair's gone at the beginning of the movie. He slowly heals throughout the course of the film, which, I mean, continuity Mm. of that, thinking, oh, what are we shooting today? Which version of the makeup are we doing today? Um, that's, That's pretty impressive. Most movies don't, even today, don't bother to do that. And um, it's... And, you know, sort of the and again, the costume design for the monster is altered a little bit as well. Um, And also um, in the ensuing years, uh, Karloff gained a little weight because he was able to actually eat. 
eats. Yeah, because uh, he's just cadaverous in the original mm-hmm. movie. And if you see him outside of the makeup in 31, pictures from him, he is like, he looks like a, a skeleton with skin on it. I mean, he's really, really thin. Um, so he was pretty mm-hmm. much, you know, just like average size, but he yeah. looks a lot <clears throat> bigger. But um, that's part of it. I think what Whale wanted yeah. uh, from his body in the first movie anyway. So you have... And, and and I love the performance also has sort of evolved. You know, he's more agile. He's um, he's running after uh, villagers at different points and things like that. So I find some some things about you know, just the logic of continuity and the makeup and the performance is, is really fascinating as well. I just want to circle back to the whole like Elsa Lancaster and her kind of mm-hmm. uh, comments about Jack Pierce. And I find it quite almost a certain amount of irony that he's working on this film and she said i think she said of him she's like he acts like he's god you know he mm-hmm. thinks he's god and it's so, so ironic that you know he's working on this film about a creator creating mm-hmm. a monster and he you know he's he basically wants to be god and there's jack pierce embodying uh, the Dr. Frankenstein mm-hmm. character and creating this monster and feeling like he is God and everyone should bow down towards him. So I think that's, you know, it's like Jack Pierce took himself far too seriously. He definitely <laughs> clearly did, Because yes. he would never compromise. Like, even, even as, like, makeup techniques changed in the ensuing decade and it became, like, easier and less expensive and less time-consuming to do, like, some of these makeups, he wouldn't change. And that's actually what by the time House of Frankenstein or House of Dracula rolls around, it's what cost him his job with Universal. They finally get fed up, but they're like, we got to save some money here and some time here. Like, you got to go. Yeah. Like, he gets the gets the gold watch and the handshake, and he gets put out the door. The one point. concession he makes in Bride is that Karloff is it's a rubber head instead of built up with mm-hmm. the cotton and collodion from the first movie. So that is saves a great deal of time as yeah. far as getting the makeup on and off. Um, yeah. And as far as comfort as well, because, yeah. wow, we talked about that in length. I can't imagine going through that, you know, collodion buildup daily it would be oh, mm-hmm. just horrendous. I will say, and that's part of Karloff was like hesitant to come back because of that. He talks about getting up at three in the morning mm-hmm. for a shoot and then like having the makeup removed at 5 a.m. And, and, and then also days or he'd, you know, be on set outdoors, like the scene uh, with Maria, like 90 degree heat in August under all this padding and costuming and makeup and just how torture it was. He was like, do I really want to put myself through all of this again for this like monster movies? Like, is this really going to be worth it? But he was convinced to come back. I do like when you talk about Karloff putting on weight, we get to son of Frankenstein. I look forward to talking about, you know, the monster with a little punch belly, you know, playing <laughs> in a softball league for dads, you know, that'll be <laughs> fun. Cause I think that's a plot point that was excised. If I remember sure, <laughs> correct. It was like the bad news bears before, you know, I think I'm funny. Anyway, another, <laughs> anyway, another addition to uh, this is Franz Waxman's score. Mm-hmm. Uh, original Frankenstein, aside from the credits, there's no music. This one, this film is like dripping with this beautiful score, even though it's only a 
22 piece orchestra uh it still sounds like very lush very full uh, and there are two beautiful motifs in this uh there's one for the bride which is like this three note like da dee da and i think it's is it first three notes from south pacific i put that in question marks here because i'm not super familiar with it but that's what i had read i believe Uh, elsewhere i hadn't heard that but that's interesting yeah listeners get back to me on that one and then there is uh, a five note motif using horns for the monster that's meant to emulate his growl Mm -hmm. that i believe carries over for other movies as well i think we'll hear that I just have it in my head that we're going to hear these like five note, like kind of horns blaring whenever the monster shows up and is pissed off. Uh, that little motif is going to rear, rear its head. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty great. Mm-hmm. So this score is fantastic. Uh, and it just it adds like another degree, especially at the end when you have the bride's motif playing over the wedding bells. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really beautiful scene. And we'll get to that here momentarily. So again, this movie flops, just like Frankenstein. Like all of this goes in, and it completely belly flops on release, like never to be heard from again. <laughs> no, it opens on Good Friday. It's another huge hit for Universal. Great Easter movie for Universal. Yeah, again, the Christian imagery can't just. There's a literal image of the crucifixion in this movie. It's perfect for Good yep. Friday. Yeah. Absolutely. It's about the dead coming there back to life. Go. I yeah. mean, what do you yeah. want? $400,000 budget. It makes five times that back. So it makes $2 million at the box office, which sounds like chump change. But again, this is when movie tickets are probably like $0.10. Cents. Mm-hmm. So you think of like how many people are going to the movies at that time. Like that is literally... Because one of the only forms of entertainment people can afford during the great depression like it's one of the few luxuries mm-hmm. that almost anyone can still give themselves over to is this the pinnacle for universal when it comes to their monsters is this like the cream of the crop i would say so yeah, yeah. i would agree yeah i'm there with you yeah. i tend to watch this with Frankenstein because they're both like 70 minute pictures and it feels like one movie maybe because so much of the cast comes back and it's the same director but I think I I give this the slight edge I think this is the height well I think in terms of style visual um and as well as themes and and it's just sort of the uh, there's it's just a rich film. There's so much going on with it that I think uh, it aspires to be more and succeeds. And I think that's why it uh, just stands up a little bit higher than some of mm-hmm. the others. I mean, I mean uh, there are rich themes, you know, in things like the invisible man and uh, others as well. But, but this is the one that I think just everything just works the way it's supposed to. And it, it, it's, it's just a, it's a, it's a masterpiece. And I try not to overuse that word, but I really think this is, this is a masterpiece. And it's the, I, I tend to call it the crown jewel of the, uh, universal monster, uh, cycle. And it, it does it like, it's when we think about films that are 
say the pinnacle of a studio it's films that can balance things really well and appeal to all types of audiences Mm. and you know with frankenstein like you were saying you know there's a little bit of humor but that might just be our us retrospectively looking at it and be like old films are hilarious um but here there is that bit of comedy in it with um una Mm o'connor like that Mm -hmm. she's there to be comedic relief and she's fantastic um and then you know there's also stuff there for you know the people that want to look subtextually at films there's people that just go to you know enjoy a monster film and it's just such a well-rounded film that you can definitely tell why it appealed to such huge audience numbers and still continues to do that like it's one of these films that i know that even now i could probably show my son and even though he's young he'd still enjoy it to Mm -hmm. a degree because it's got like monsters in Mm -hmm. it and there's a little bit of action in it um and then in a couple of years he can then watch it again and appreciate it for perhaps more kind of you know film stuff so it's just it's this film that just continues to captivate audiences even though it's you know a completely different century now and i think that that's what makes it like their best film it it builds off of the formula that dracula established but it it adds so much more to the extent that it just perfects the thing not only in the thematic element it looks this film looks amazing um in, in a way that like the earlier universal monster films don't because it's just a journeyman pointing a camera and shooting a thing. Whereas whales taking risks, he's, he's setting up shots. He's the, the editing is really interesting and intricate in certain areas. Like there's, there's a lot going on here um, that the rest of these movies just aren't doing yeah. that. It takes someone like whale to inject that kind of vision into the thing to make it, what this is. And I think this film better than any of the others in the franchise that I've seen anyway, um, really is able to do that and, and elevate the entire, the entire thing uh, to just not just it's, this isn't just a great universal monster movie or a great horror movie. This is a great movie yeah. period, no matter who you are. Whale had brought on like John Mescal to light and shoot this movie for him. It's someone he had worked with five times. Mescal was like nominated for an Oscar in the forties and Mesco would say he tried to light it in such a way that he knew, like, even though you might see like the creature looked green in his makeup, he knew like, I wanted to shoot him. So he looked like deathly white, Mm -hmm. like a corpse. Like, and that's Mm. what he would aim for in his lighting of it. And the lighting is gorgeous here. The angles that Mescal goes for here, especially when he contrasts Pretorius in, uh, Henry, I want to talk about that later on, like the contrast between them, especially when Whale is like going super close up on them is incredible here. And Meskel was an alcoholic. Like you have a lot of persons on this cast and crew that are struggling with a lot of demons and you, it didn't interfere with his work when he was on set. It was getting to set that caused a lot of issues. And Universal would literally call for a car for him every morning to make sure that he would get there. But like, this is some of his finest work and it, it definitely shows here. I, you know, mm-hmm. I do think that you definitely see a difference yeah. in the universal horror after Bride of Frankenstein, mm-hmm. even the Wolfman, which I think is a beautiful movie. Love the Wolfman. It does not have the same lush operatic 
look and feel to it that Bride of Frankenstein does. Which, Not at all. Which I Not think when, uh, and we'll talk about this more with Son of Frankenstein, I think, is is you have the gap. You have the couple of gap years uh, mm-hmm. between this original run that ends with uh, Dracula's daughter and um, then resumes with Son of Frankenstein. You just have a different... Um, different production team entirely a sort of a different yeah. philosophy of uh, finances and ver- and as opposed to oh. artistry this movie what yep. talking piggybacking on what you're saying about the look of the film i think it's a there's wonderful sort of continuity with the first film but it sort of builds on it too so there's a lot of that expressionistic look um going on mm-hmm. in both films and um the deep shadows the the you know, the assured angles of the sets, you could say, I suppose. Mm-hmm. The, just just mm-hmm. these um, things that are um, that are choices, like Stephen said. They're very much like we're kind of emulating and building on a look that was established uh, by, you know, our forefathers, F.W. Murnau, uh, Fritz Lang. We're taking that and we're putting it into this and... Um, and I think it's just striking and um, it sets the tone for what these movies should look like and kind of do look like all the way through the 50s yeah. in some ways. So in like Great. with the Hammer uh, renaissance of these kinds of films. Mm-hmm. All right. So we are going to pause there. That covers the making of The Bride of Frankenstein and we're going to pick up later this week with our main discussion of the film and there is a lot of episode left so we have uh, Brian, Stephen, Egrain and myself coming back we hope you've enjoyed what we've given you so far and if you have make sure that you are rating, reviewing and subscribing to us wherever you get your podcast. If you want to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash part of the pendulum. Become a patron today and get all of our bonus content. Otherwise, we'll be back super, super soon with the second half of our episode. Hope you're enjoying it so far. We'll be back just a few days, I believe, with The Bride of Frankenstein Part 2.